This podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the industry's leading solar investment platform, truly leading. GTM ranks Wonder as the top financier of commercial solar in the U.S. So if you want your project financed or if you want to invest in solar with returns up to 7.5% annually, go on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. We're also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group. Shoals is the top equipment maker for solar and storage. Your project, it deserves the best balance of systems tech so that you can drive down costs and boost performance. And there's only one place to turn, that is Shoals. Find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Shale Khan is with me from Berkeley, California. He's back after a few week absence. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. So our listeners know Shale as my co-host and the Senior Vice President of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. He is also playing a different role this week, Energy Oracle slash Las Vegas Bookie. So, Shale, you published a piece recently with eight bold predictions on the future, and you have challenged readers to place bets on those predictions. I guess that means me, too. Uh, What caused you to break out your crystal ball? Um, Well, so Energy Impact Partners, the the venture capital firm where I work, holds this annual meeting where we bring all of our our ecosystem together, which means we have a bunch of utilities who've invested in the fund. We have uh, 20 companies that we've now invested in who are in our portfolio. So we bring all these people together. It's a couple hundred people and a few invited guests and talk about what we're up to, but also talk about the future. And so I had to give a presentation about what's coming. And uh, I was thinking about a colleague of mine named Andy, who I work with, whose wife is pregnant, and um, he has a daughter who's due to be born right around the end of the year, so just in a couple of months. And Andy and his wife have nicknamed their daughter Bug until she's born. Um, so I was thinking about how to how to talk about what's going to happen in the in the sort of medium to long term future, and I was thinking about this. Bill Gates quote that's kind of famous. He wrote it in a, a 1996 memoir. And the quote is, we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. So I was thinking about that. And you know, in the energy context, we spend a lot of time talking about the very long-term future, what happens in a deep decarbonized world. And we spend a lot of time talking about what's happening right now. But if you think about bug who's going to be born, you know, right at the beginning of 2019. I think that, you know, over the course of her life as she hits various milestones, you know, she's going to see the world, especially the world as it pertains to energy, in a whole bunch of ways that are totally different from what we see now, and it's useful to think about, you know, what's going to happen to Bug when she uh, reaches high school? What's going to happen to Bug when she decides to move out of the house? What is that going to mean for the future of how she interacts with technology and what that means for energy. So the way that I ended up framing the presentation and then this article, which is based on it, is I made eight bets about the future of Bug's life. Um, And each bet basically is supposed to sort of test our estimation of change in some period in the future um, as seen through the eyes of Bug. So the idea is, I make the bet, and you can decide whether or not to take it. If you take the bet, that means you disagree with me. All right. I'm ready to take some bets. All right. Let's do it. 
Okay, so first let me just start by just you know reminding you of the timeline of Bug's life because I think this is important. So she's going to be born at the end of this year. So let's just say she's born at the beginning of 2019. So she'll be entering high school in the year 2033. She'll you know graduate from high school and potentially leave home in 2037. She'll turn 30 in the year 2049. Um, she'll be in, in 2054, she will be eligible to, and hopefully will run for president. So, you know, she's going to live through the middle of this century and perhaps out much longer. And we'll talk about that. Uh, so it's important to think about that when I lay out these bets, because you got to know what timeline we're talking about here. So with no further ado, bet number one. Bug will control machines with her voice more than she will with her keyboard. So quick explanation on this one. Um, You know, we've grown very accustomed to controlling computers and devices with a a keyboard, right? We were trained on it. And depending on when you grew up, you learned on a typewriter or you learned via Mavis teaches typing or something like that. Um, the world of voice control for devices has also been around for for kind of a long time. We have um, Mike Phillips from Sense, who's been on our podcast before and is one of the uh, portfolio companies for EIP. He he his previous life was being a pioneer in the voice recognition world, and he started a company that was pretty successful doing voice recognition. and And he started in 1994, so there's a long track record of it. But what we have seen in that world over the past three years is completely unprecedented. So three years is about how long companies like Amazon have been selling Alexa devices, um, similar Google selling Google Home Minis and things like that. These are the voice digital assistants that we see in the home. So it, they've only been on the market really for three, maybe three and a half years. By some estimates, by the end of this year, just in the United States, there will be close to 80 million of these devices rolled out, which is going to equate to over 50 million individual users, which is over 20% of the U.S. adult population who will have one of these voice digital assistants in their home. Just for context on that, it took the internet seven years to get to 50 million users. It took mobile phones 12 years to get to 50 million users. It took the iPod four years. The only thing that has seen an adoption rate similar to these voice digital assistants is Facebook. And Facebook, of course, is free. And you just sign up for it in two seconds online. These voice digital assistants are hardware devices that people are paying for. So the fact that we're getting to 50 million users this quickly is absolutely insane, which makes me think that by the time Bug can speak, (laughs) she's going to be controlling machines with her voice. Um, And that's going to present all sorts of weird opportunities for her to annoy her parents when she's in her terrible twos. I'll bet in favor of that prediction. It's been extraordinary to see how quickly these devices have grown, surpassing mobile phone growth. Um, It took like 30 years for mobile phones to outnumber humans, and it will take a fraction of that amount of time for smart home assistants to outnumber humans around the globe. More than that, these devices are starting to get good at mimicking human emotion and mimicking human voice. So we know we know the Amazon Alexa, we know Siri, we know Google Home. 
But, you know, Google's experimenting with Duplex, which is an even more sophisticated uh, voice technology that really, truly sounds like a human being and will do more than just utilitarian tasks. It will start to mimic a human being who can um, be an emotional support for a lot of people. And so I think that we're going to increasingly rely on these devices to do utilitarian tasks and human-oriented tasks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually the big question ultimately here, which is what is, you know, let's assume that she has some voice digital assistants in her home and she's used to them. What What is she going to do with them? You know, what, what sort of control will she exert? And so there's a bunch of interesting data in the early days right now, but what are people doing with all these Alexas and Siri's and Google Home Minis that they have at home? And as you can imagine, and this, you know, will make you happy, Stephen, you know, the single largest thing that they tend to do is listen to audio, right? They stream music, they listen to podcasts, they listen to sports or news. Um, that's generally followed by gaining knowledge. So they ask, they check the weather, they ask a Google a question, um, they play trivia games. Following that is the one that I think is going to be most interesting over the long term, but will take time because it requires additional devices to be connected up, which is using it to exert control over the home. That could be anything from like setting an alarm to controlling smart home devices. So the example that's relevant to Energy Impact Partners is where one of our other investments is Ecobee, the second largest smart thermostat company behind Nest. Um, Ecobee has an Alexa built into it. So when you buy a smart thermostat from Ecobee, you get an Alexa inside it. So you can control your your smart thermostat via your voice in, immediately and automatically. You can also do all this other Alexa stuff with it. I think you're going to see more and more of that um, as we start to see more and more devices that are connected proliferate throughout the home. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is the shift that we'll have to keep our eyes on. Right now, it's people asking to play music, asking for the weather, maybe asking to order a pizza or something. And the big question is, will the skills that companies are developing become sophisticated enough that consumers are asking consistently for those devices to control what's happening in the home. So that's definitely the shift that I'll be watching when we start to see controls actually match up to these very simple utilitarian tasks. Right. Okay, should we go on to bet number two? Yeah, okay. Bet number two is that Bug will never personally drive a car. Um, so there are actually a few different bets sort of embedded within this one, so let me kind of run through them one by one. The, f the first is that she won't actually need to own a car. And so on uh, this one, you know, we've been, I think there've been a bunch of sort of fear mongering articles for a number of years about the end of car ownership. Um, and, and, you know, there isn't a ton of evidence that that is happening yet in the United States, but I'll make two cases for why it is coming. The first is that um, one new thing that is happening is that the big trans new transportation companies are trying to push the end of personal car ownership as fast as they can. Lyft is is doing this. They launched this program earlier this year in Chicago where they would pay people um, a fixed stipend in the form of Lyft credits and public transit credits to ditch their car for a month just to see if they could do it. And it was so successful that two months later, they rolled out that challenge to 35 cities. So companies like Lyft and Uber obviously have a vested interest in trying to um, accelerate the end of car ownership. The other thing that is is evidence in favor of this being a real possibility is that it is happening in other countries. Germany is a good example of this. 
So Germany, in back in steady state, which is about a decade ago, would get about 1.1 million new driver's license applications from young people, from like 17 to 25-year-olds each year. And by 2017, a decade later, it was down to about 825,000. So it dropped by a quarter over the course of that decade, which is to say that young Germans are increasingly foregoing driver's licenses and thus car ownership themselves. I think that's going to come in the United States, perhaps a bit slower because we have such a culture around our personal car ownership, but uh, but I think it's coming nonetheless. Yeah, but there's a big difference between abandoning car ownership and never personally driving a car. Yeah, exactly right. So that that was that's sort of sub bet number one. Um, the thing I would say in addition to that is that you know one of the things that's important to note about the way that we use cars in the United States um, is that the vast majority of the trips that we take in vehicles are pretty short. So there's some good data from the DOE, about 60% of the vehicle trips that we take in the United States are less than six miles. So they tend to be in urban environments um, where you know there, there should be a good alternative. Uh, and the reason that I think we haven't seen other things displacing cars historically is that there haven't been great alternatives for those sort of short urban transportation trips. Um, but increasingly now there are, right? There, in addition to the sort of cars you don't need to own that you can still ride in, so that could be car sharing, um, but it also could be Uber and Lyft and ride hailing. Now, as we've talked about before, we see this total revolution in um, what people call micromobility, so bike sharing and e-scooters. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new world of last mile urban transportation, which does represent the vast majority of the trips that we actually take in cars. You just love scooters. You'll talk about them any chance you can get. <laughs> that is definitely true. It has become a big part of my my conversational repertoire to talk about these scooters. Um, but you know, I do think they're important in this context of you know replacing cars in at least some instances with other modes of transportation, which is coming around the same time. The, the third sort of sub bet here that is also really important is, you know, I'm betting that Bug will never personally drive a car. Um, the other question here is, will anyone personally drive a car? And so this is obviously a question about the the growth of autonomous vehicles. Um, and I think that there's plenty of reason to be skeptical about the pace at which we're going to see autonomous vehicles on the roads. There's been a bunch of really good reporting lately about, you know, Waymo, which is the the leader in actual public miles driven in autonomous vehicles. They're now doing over a million miles a month on public roads and the challenges that they are still facing, right? So, you know, you can make a good case that it's a ways off. Um, nonetheless, basically every major auto OEM has announced a timeline for high or full auto automation of vehicles that generally gets you to full automation, like level five, as they call it, by sometime in the middle of the next decade, 2025 or so. And so this is a good case for me where it's important to remember the Bill Gates quote and to think about the timeline of Bugs Life. Because if we're going to start to see fully automated vehicles on the road in 2025, Bug is going to be in kindergarten at that point. So she has an, there's another decade between then and when she's going to be eligible to get a driver's license. By that point, do we really think that we're not going to see at least some meaningful share of autonomous vehicles on the road? Yes, 
but there's something very important in what you just said, a meaningful share. That means there will be tons of non-fully autonomous vehicles on the road. And I do not see America's car culture changing so much that people won't want to drive. Now, will Bug want to drive a lot? Probably not. Will Bug own a car? Probably not. Will Bug want to satisfy her curiosity and drive a vehicle? Probably. And there will just be enough cars on the road that are human-operated or at least human-assisted that Bug will definitely drive a car in her lifetime. I, I don't see her completely ditching getting behind the steering wheel. It's possible. And I think that uh, a lot of it will rely on whether Bug ends up living in a rural or an urban environment. I think people who live in urban environments 16 years from now are really going to have very little need to drive cars. Um, yeah, I agree. But if she ends up living in a more rural environment, you know, possibly there, it's going to be the last place that these things change because, you know, it won't be relevant for all this last mile urban transportation. The public transportation won't be as good. So for any number of reasons, she'd be more likely to drive then. This is, in my opinion, one of your more precarious projections, not because we are not headed in the direction that you outlined, but because one crash could derail the entire trajectory. If we have one or two major crashes, a major car hack that causes a serious accident, it could set the regulatory environment back completely. Cities could abandon their programs. You could potentially set back massive A use, AV use by a decade. So I, I just, I agree that we're headed in that direction, but I think that one major problem could completely set everything back. Yeah, I've heard that argument. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's that's true, that that would happen if you, if you had one big accident. I mean, first of all, there's the reality that we have big accidents all the time caused by human drivers. So one accident caused by an autonomous vehicle shouldn't outweigh that. Um, nonetheless, I mean, what you're, the point you're making is more of a political and sort of news-oriented point. And, you know, I, I think it'll be, you'll get big articles and you'll get a bit of a backlash. Um, but unless there's a big spate of them, I, I at least tend to think that we'll continue a pace with figuring out all the rules and regulations and safety guidelines that will enable these things to actually show up on the roads. And again, given the timeline that we're talking about here, I think it'll, I think it'll arrive by the time she's able to drive. So your next prediction it feeds into transportation infrastructure. So what happens if we have a bunch of AVs? What happens to the parking around us and all the infrastructure to support the way we use vehicles today? What is bet number three and how does it feed into bet number two? Well, so bet number three is that by the time Bug buys her first home or moves into her first home, vast swaths of urban areas in which she might live that are currently dedicated to parking will be repurposed. So there's a couple important things to note here. The first is if, you know, let's say that you take my premise that autonomous vehicles are coming, um, or even if not autonomous vehicles, that we're going to see continued rapid growth in, in things like Uber and Lyft um, and in this last mile urban mobility world. The thing that's really important about all those different modes of transportation is that they will be fleets, right? This is the, the world where um, vehicles, be they bikes or cars, um, will be owned by central fleet operators. Uh, and the economics of operating a fleet, be it autonomous or not, are pretty directly correlated with um, the utilization rate of the, the vehicle. 
In other words, you want the thing to be on the road as much as possible. The more that it's on the road, the better the economics are for you. So you're going to have all these fleet operators who are spending all this time trying to increase utilization rates. Um, what that means is that we're going to need less parking infrastructure, right? If the vehicles are in use more of the time, we need less parking. The second thing that is important to note is that in the United States especially, we dedicate an absolutely ridiculous amount of our urban land to parking today. I would argue far more than is necessary. It, it varies by city to some degree, um, but anywhere between, say, one-seventh and a quarter of all urban land is currently dedicated to surface parking in the cities, which is an absolutely incredible amount. Um, in cities like Philadelphia, you have like one and a half parking st- public parking stalls per person, not per vehicle, but per person. In Des Moines, it's like seven and a half. So we just use so much land for parking, which is one of these things that like, once I read about this, I started noticing it. If you just walk around the city, you just look at how much of the space, valuable urban space is taken up by parking. It's wild. So if that parking slowly starts to become unprofitable because people are using it less and less and the land becomes available, um, then you could see, you know, this isn't going to happen overnight, but you could see a, a transformation of, of the urban environment. I will agree with that prediction, but I initially thought about betting against it only because I thought the prediction was too loose. So I took your language literally. When you say your surrounding, her surroundings will be transformed, I imagined new ways of building buildings. I mean, just taking over parking lots and putting up more buildings or other infrastructure doesn't really transform your surroundings that much. It just gets rid of parking. So I think things are going to look pretty similar. There are going to be changes. Maybe those parking lots are used for better things. Maybe they're maintenance facilities for autonomous vehicles. Maybe they're just more commercial buildings. But I don't think that that will be that noticeable for the average person. So when I think of the phrase surroundings transformed, I'm going to bet against it. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I guess I would argue that it sort of depends what replaces that parking infrastructure. Um, But even if it is just more buildings, I mean, that creates so much more density, so much more urban density, which for many reasons I think is good. Um, so maybe that isn't transformative in the way that you're thinking about it, but from the urban planner's perspective, it's a, I think it's a huge difference. I mean, if you think about, again, how much space we have to dedicate to parking today, sort of removing a significant chunk of that and having that available for whatever, parks or buildings or something, um, it's a big difference. Yeah, that is true. I'm so used to seeing parking everywhere. I guess taking that out would be a pretty serious change. It's a bit like, for me anyway, it's a bit like I've suddenly seen the Matrix. Like now I walk around the city uh, and I just see all the parking and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you took the red pill. Yeah. Well, then what happens to that space? Maybe we use some of it for agriculture, which brings you to bet four. Right. What's going on with the way we grow food in the future? Yeah, so the next bet is sort of a a result of this one, which is, let's see, you have all this uh, additional urban land that becomes available piece by piece over time. What are we going to do with that land? Which the answer will be a bunch of things, but one thing that we might do with our land um, in urban environments is use it to grow crops. Um, So this is a bet about indoor agriculture. And 
you know, indoor agriculture is something I think we're going to talk about pretty soon on a future episode. So we don't have to go into great detail, but it has, um, it has a bunch of advantages over the way that we traditionally grow crops, you know, far lower water usage. Uh, it can, it's in an urban environment, so it's close to demand, lower transportation and shipping logistics costs. You can basically, if you're doing it fully indoors, you can grow it in, uh, essentially a lab environment. So you can exert a lot of control and optimize the crops better. So there's a bunch of reasons why it could be better. And so there's all these companies, we've counted more than 50 of them that have popped up to, to do indoor agriculture. Uh, at this point, you know, indoor crop growing is, uh, basically a negligible share of vegetables in the United States, but in places like the Netherlands, um, over 30% of their vegetables are already grown in indoors, largely in greenhouses in their case. So it's faster in other places. Japan also is a little bit further ahead. So the bet here is that by the time Bug is buying her own groceries, 20% of her produce will be grown indoors. Yeah, I'm going to agree with this prediction. If you look at the growth rates of indoor vertical farming, it's growing at about 30% a year. So that is not expected to slow down, only accelerate. I agree with this because I actually think we're going to see a substantial shift, not through market forces, but through government mandate. So think about the current agriculture system, which was basically set up by the government's investing in R&D initiatives to boost crop yields. And we've been able to see extraordinary yield improvements because of technology and a gov- massive government investment in technology. Now we can go into all the reasons why increased pesticides and our current land use and the types of uh, monocultures we support are really bad for the environment and human health. Uh, there are plenty of drawbacks, but clearly we have seen a massive increase in food production, which has improved a lot of people's lives. Again, supported by governments around the world. Climate change is going to be a serious disaster for farmers in this country. I think it's going to be a particular disaster because of our types of monoculture farming as well. And so when you see bigger deluges because of the atmosphere is holding more moisture, when you see more extreme droughts, um, you're probably going to come to a point where the government has to step in with some other kind of green revolution And that will probably mean growing more food indoors because of a more severe climate. So I actually see in the coming decades this happening because the government actually steps in. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I was, I'm imagining it happening with or without government intervention. You know, I think with just the pure argument that at at some point the economics are going to get better. Um, And, you know, there's going to be some demand from people for, locally grown, you know, low water use, no pesticides stuff. I mean, side note, one of the weird things about this is that some of these, uh, some of these growers, hinder agriculture growers, you know, they can't get classified as organic, even though they don't actually use any pesticides and they use 98% less water because the definition of organic has to do with the soil that's used. And in some cases they're not actually using soil. So it's a weird challenge that they face, but, um, you know, setting aside the definitional issue, I was just sort of assuming it would come from a combination of economics and consumer demand. Um, but it's interesting, the idea that there would be a, a policy push for it as well. Fun fact, the kale that I served with my eggs this morning came from three blocks away from a shipping container at a vertical farm. Oh, man, that's like, that's such a hashtag hipster brag that you just made. <laughs> that's amazing. 
<laughs> I loved a virtue signal, right? I'm using this podcast as a platform to talk about how amazing my habits are. This is the I biggest. Have plenty of bad ones, but these these small ones make me look good. This, this is the biggest <laughs> problem we have on this podcast, which is that all you want to do is is hipster brag, and all I want to do is talk about scooters. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about vertical farming in greater detail in an upcoming episode, so look out for that. In the meantime, let's go to um, bet number five, back into Bug's house. Yeah. So the next bet is that in Bug's first home, once she has bought it, more than half of her load, her electricity load, will be flexible and responsive to a grid signal or to a price. Fortunately for Bug, she will have no idea what that means and she won't need to. Basically, this this bet actually, I think, is maybe the least controversial um, of any of the ones that I've made. And the reason is that it's actually not that hard to make more than 50% of the load in a home controllable. Depending on where she lives in the country, if you just look at sort of aggregate load profiles for, for residential customers, let's say that Bug lives in the south somewhere. 18% of her load is going to come from space heating, another 26% from air conditioning. So if you just have a smart thermostat that controls your heating and air conditioning, that gets you close to 50% on its own. Um, in some homes, it's more than 50%. If you add a smart water heater, you're way over 50% just through that. In some other places, you might also need to control the lights or clothes washers and dryers. But the point being, like there, there are a small number of devices that comprise a big chunk of our load in the home. And so if you just make those controllable and responsive and to act as load flexibility on the grid, you get a big chunk of residential load that can be that way. And that doesn't even account for if I'm wrong about bug buying a car and she buys an electric vehicle and has a smart charger, that's a huge load that becomes flexible and responsive. Or if bug decides to install, you know, stationary energy storage, which just makes a bunch, you know, whole big chunk of her load, no matter where it's coming from, flexible. So this one to me, I think is actually a slam dunk. I will bet in favor of that prediction. I'll add to it. I think she'll be able to check in on that load shifting and the health of the equipment totally via voice control. Yes. But my bet is that she will never do that. <laughs> like, you know, she'll, she'll check in on her, her appliances, but you know, I think the whole notion of load flexibility for residential customers is going to have to rely on it all happening in the background. Like I want to, I want to maintain my level of comfort in the home and I want in the background, I want my devices to be optimized against, you know, some price signal from the grid to save me money on my bill, but I don't want to have to think about it. I certainly, you know, and I'm an energy person, like assuming bug, the apple, assuming the, the apple falls far from the tree and bug doesn't follow in her father's footsteps and work at energy impact partners. Um, I don't think she's going to want to spend a ton of time on it either. So there won't be a speaker placed in the corner of the room with robotic announcements. Bug, there is an electricity need in sector four. The assistance of your device is needed. Your battery will now discharge. Oh, man. I hope that no. somebody takes it, that snippet of audio from this podcast and turns <laughs> it into like a dystopian movie future. You now have your next Alexa skill. Some savvy developer, please use that. Bet number six. We now get to renewables. Well, actually, before we get to renewables, I mean, I think just stepping back on these last few bets, right? So we're talking about her home and the the um, responsive load in the home. We're talking about making agriculture, indoor agriculture. We're talking about, uh, you know, vehicles transforming from the current mode into this new mode. One of the things that is consistent 
across basically all of those is that they result in higher market share for electricity within the energy context. So one of the things that I often forget because I spend so much time thinking about electricity as opposed to broader energy is that electricity in the U.S. only comprises about 20% of final energy demand. Um, 80% of it still is not electricity. So basically, you know, the entire transportation industry, most of industrial processes, and then a good chunk of residential and commercial electricity or energy demand rather don't come from electricity at this point, which means that there is a ton of market share that electricity can theoretically gain. And there's been this great um, series of studies that NREL has been doing called Electricity Futures Initiative, where they're basically trying to map out like how much can we electrify really? Um, and what will that look like? And so their high electrification case says that by 2050, electricity could comprise about 41% of final energy demand, which basically would double its market share from today, from about 20% to 41%. So that's my bet, that by the time bug reaches 30, which would be in 2050 or so, electricity's market share as a, as a share of total energy consumption will double. I hate to keep agreeing with you, but I will bet in favor of that prediction as well. What I found most interesting about that NREL report was that most of the growth comes in the residential sector. Um, in their high scenario, electric devices provide 61% of space heating, 52% of water heating, and 94% of cooking services uh, by 2050. So if you look at the two charts that you put into your uh, piece, m the vast majority of growth actually comes from the residential sector. Well, it's it sort of depends how you look at it. On a, on a percentage basis, you get a big chunk out of out of residential, but but actually the the biggest single contributor to the growth of electricity is transportation, and this is true. I mean, if you look at their overall forecasts, like you can't get a significant increase in in electricity's share of total energy without electrifying a fair bit of of transportation, mostly light duty vehicles, but to some degree medium and heavy duty vehicles as well. You don't necessarily need aviation yet. To, to the point of the electric airplanes we were talking about a couple episodes ago, um, but you do need to tran to electrify transportation. So where are those electrons going to come from? That's bet number seven. What is it? Yeah, so this is another one I think probably isn't going to be too controversial, um, but the bet is that by the time Bug reaches the age of 15, uh, more than 50% of her electricity, which is sort of representative of the electricity in the country overall, will come from renewables. Um, combination of hydro plus solar and wind and geothermal. Uh, and so, you know, I was just using as a, as a benchmark Bloomberg's long-term forecast, they've got, um, they've got 50% getting hit in 2035. And then by the time bug would reach the age of 25, um, it would be about two thirds already. So this is, and all this requires is just a continuation of the current trend, which is like slow decline in actually a relatively rapid decline in coal, basically maintenance of the market share of, of gas, and then continued growth of both solar and wind, but particularly solar. Let me make this interesting and agree with you and also partially disagree with you. If you look at projections from notoriously conservative organizations like the Energy Information Administration were going to hit that target. So I think most people believe that we will get there. Definitely not controversial. 
just take a look at the interconnection queues around the country and the resource procurement plans for utilities. It is almost all renewables in some places. So I, I don't know of anyone who doesn't think that we won't hit that target. But I do have some hesitation, um, hesitation which stems from your last bet. I do think that this is going to be more difficult when you factor in increasing electrification. And renewables need to grow, but also keep pace with expanding demand for electricity. And a lot of the projections that we rely on don't really take into account the scenarios outlined by NREL or the Electric Power Research Institute. So these are relatively new predictions, and I think we have to reconcile both of them when we look at the growth of renewables. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's right, and that's an important point. The other thing that I think should give you at least a little bit of pause about this this long term future is that if we're going to get to fifty percent renewables nationally, that almost by definition means that we're going to have some locations that are well above it, right? And so places like California are going to be um, at high, very high penetration renewable energy by that point. And so all these conversations that we've had about how do you how do you manage a super high penetration renewables world will come to the forefront um, n- over not that long a period of time. So we're going to have to answer these questions about seasonality and things like that. Um, not to say that we can't, but it is to say that, it, that it, it's a necessary question that needs to be answered sooner rather than later. Speaking of questions that need to be answered, we're all trying to figure out what is the meaning of life? What are we doing here? What is our existence all about? And that is bet number eight. Yeah. So this is the point when I was putting this together where I was looking through the previous seven bets and I was worried that they weren't um, controversial enough. And I think that's to some degree been reflected in the fact that you seem to agree with most of them. So I was, I was thinking, okay, so what's a bet that I can make? First, I'm supposed to represent, you know, I'm, I'm the, the Energy Impact Partner San Francisco office. There's only a couple of us out here in San Francisco. Everybody else is in New York. So I'm supposed to be the techno optimist here. So I was thinking, what can I do that is going to be a little more controversial? Um, the result of that is the final bet, bet number eight which is that Bug will live for over 200 years, and for most of her life, electricity will be her only food. So <laughs> so what this bet actually- Vertically you know, farmed electricity. Yeah, vertically farmed electricity. Um, so basically what this is betting is that before Bug uh, passes away, her consciousness will be downloaded into a machine somehow, and that machine will be powered off of electricity, and thus electricity will replace food for her for the majority of her very, very, very long life. Um, As far as justification for this one goes, I have very little, (laughs) admittedly, um, except to offer just a little bit of context around time frame. So Bugs born in 2019. Let's just say that her, you know, life expectancy today is something like 85 years. So she's going to live until the year 2100, barring um, some unfortunate circumstance. So 85 years is a very long time. I just wanted to provide some context with like 85 years ago. Some of the things that we had not invented, this is the year 1933. We hadn't invented radar, jet engines, personal computers. We hadn't invented smartphones, microwave ovens, LEDs, the birth control pill. We hadn't invented canned beer, which is insane. Um, Which is just to say that like, how how confident are you that in the next 85 years, we're not going to be able to figure out a way to, to have a bug live exclusively off of electricity? Well, I disagree with your 
analysis, sir, because I already think we are living in a simulated reality. There are billions of realities playing out all at once, and this is only one of them. Oh, my God. This is like, are we doing the like Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, like getting high and doing a podcast? (laughs) I didn't get the memo. All right. Well, think about it. Our knowledge of the truth is constantly changing, right? We make more and more discoveries about where we fit into the universe, how our biology works. We completely shift how we view ourselves. It happens all the time. Is it not possible that we've reached the computing power necessary to create these virtual realities and we're now just reliving a simulation of our previous selves? So you took my what I thought was a very controversial bet that I would I would be sure to get you to disagree with and instead made an even more controversial one. <laughs> That's <laughs> like right. an even crazier. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll bet against yours and stick with mine. I think maybe the earth was destroyed long ago and we're sitting in a bunch of servers floating in space with maybe holograms of Elon Musk and Carl Sagan at the helm of the ship. Oh man, that's kind of a bummer. I think it's pretty cool, actually. That doesn't bum me out at all. All right, so let's walk through the predictions one more time so that our listeners remember them and maybe they can respond and share their thoughts. Okay, so the 2018 bug bets. Um, Number one, she will control machines with her voice more than with her keyboard. Number two, she will never personally drive a car. Number three, by the time she buys her first home, her surroundings will be transformed. Specifically, parking will be repurposed in her urban environment. Number four, by the time she shops for her own groceries, 20% of her produce will be grown indoors. Number five, in her first home, more than half of her electricity load will be a source of grid flexibility. Number six, electricity's market share of energy will more than double by the time she reaches 30. Number seven, by the time she's 15, half of her electricity will come from renewables. And number eight, the final bet, she will live for over 200 years and for most of her life, electricity will be her only food. I love it. It's time for you, dear listeners, to make some bets. Would you bet for or against Shale's arguments? What do you think of my reactions? Are we living in a virtual reality? We're going to link to Shale's piece in the show notes and you can respond on Twitter or just in the comments section at Green Tech Media. This was uh, one of my favorite pieces you've ever written, Shale. Thanks for discussing it here. Thank you. It's fun for me too. And uh, I, have a, I have a great time trying to think of these bets. Thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate you being here with us every week. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is the Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. <laughs>